I did it to save my relationship with my parents and to be able to actually heal. Like imagine trying to heal from, you know, from internalized misogyny and all this stuff when every day, day in and day out, it's like, send when you're getting married, send me something wrong with you because you're not getting married. Why won't men marry you? Why are you this and that? It's like, no matter how strong you are, if a drop of water hits a boulder every day, there will be a hole. And I was not strong enough to place internal boundaries, as in anything my mom says to me won't affect me. <laughs> I needed to have the external boundaries. And my mom is the kind of person where if I told her, mom, don't say this because it really hurts me emotionally, she will be like, well, thank you for telling me your weakness. Uh, now I will use it as a weapon. When it comes to relationships, are we entitled to the quote-unquote Carfax of this potential partner? And if so, where can we get the honesty is the best policy when it comes to relationship warranties? You're listening to Unseen and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 28 of season three. Dear listeners, you're in for a treat because this episode is nothing short of hilarious, even though we are unpacking loads of trauma. In today's episode, I sit down with Salma Hindi, biomedical engineer by day and accomplished comedian by night. And if you're familiar with who Selma is, then you know she brings a comedic twist to any conversation. Selma takes us back to her earlier childhood days, which were void of music, going to the mall, and basically anything a normal teenager was allowed to experience. If you grew up in a household with strict and conservative parents, then you will most likely relate to Selma's crazy childhood stories. By default, she also found herself as one of the elite members of the Haram Police. We talk about how her high school friendships were difficult to navigate because of her past judgmental ways. And now, fast forward to today, the script has been flipped, meaning that Selma is now facing the same scrutiny from the same group of people for her most recent personal choices. So what does one do when your high school peers come out of the woodworks to give you a taste of your own medicine? I generally applaud Selma for her authenticity and her ability to not shy away from difficult conversations by being transparent about her experience with relationships, halal dating, and how therapy has truly impacted her. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me today, Salma. I'm super excited for our conversation. We're going to talk about dating woes, therapy no's, relationship advice, your slight initiation with the Haram police. I would love for you to first introduce yourself and inshallah, we can get right into it. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Donia. This is so exciting to be here. My name is Salma Hindi. I was born and raised in Toronto. I still live here as of now. I am a biomedical clinical engineer during the day and a stand-up comedian at night, uh, or at least I was pre-COVID. But actually, no, now things are picking up again. So I still am both those things. Yes. I absolutely love it. Like, do those two career paths even kind of relate to one another at all? Like, do you find any comparisons or do you feel like they're just completely two different things? which is so interesting because it kind of shows how multifaceted we are as well. Right. I mean, I would definitely say that the skills I have from comedy helps me so much much in my engineering job. Like I remember one time I had to get up and give a presentation during a lab meeting in front of like 40 people uh, or like a lab manager meeting. So like the stakes were even higher. And uh, and yeah, I literally felt so at home. Actually, it was so easy for me because I didn't have to make them laugh. 
you know, nice. but I did make them laugh. So it was just a bonus. Whereas other people, I would see them freaking out and they'd get so scared about it. But I'm like, bro, this is, I do this every night. Like, do you know what I mean? And also the socializing, like I work with a lot of people during my engineering job. So I think the people skills that I developed from comedy just really, really helps with that. Definitely. That's amazing. And I've seen some of your work and it's hilarious. And of course, it's easy to relate to the certain things that you bring up in jokes. You know, some of your jokes are inspired by your upbringing. Can we talk about how you were brought up? How was your family life? Was it super strict or were your parents more on the liberal side? I think most of the time our parents are like are extra conservative. Extra, extra, extra. Yes. Like, you know, if you went into a <laughs> drive through you just keep saying extra, like extra, extra, extra conservative. Actually, interesting. I was talking to my friends about it yesterday. My parents were kind of chill. They're from Egypt originally. They moved here in the 70s, but they were kind of they were chill in Egypt. Their families are weren't that practicing back then. And then they got they got married and then they moved here and they started to. So my mom put on the hijab after she got married. But like, you know, it was like turban style in the photo. <laughs> and then my dad uh, started to grow a beard, but they were still kind of chill. Like they listened to the Beatles, Rolling Stones. My dad named my oldest sister, Angie, after a Rolling Stone song. And yeah, they were kind of still chill. But then when I was seven years old, my dad became uh, an imam of a masjid here. And then it was like military, basically, type of upbringing. Like no more birthdays, like literally no public school, no Halloween, of course. We would like barricade the doors and turn off all the lights on Halloween (laughs) because my dad would rather us like fake our own deaths than to have to interact with white people during their shaitan holiday and so yeah so like it was really 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 strict from that point onwards no music we weren't allowed to listen to music we only went to islamic school growing up and then my brother was having some behavioral issues in islamic school he's he's two years older than me so then my parents were like forget this we're going to open our own islamic school so they literally opened their own islamic school and masjid and community center until this day they're running two actually one in mississauga one in scarborough like which are cities within uh the greater toronto area but yeah So I had a very, very strict upbringing. My siblings homeschooled for high school. So I was just grateful to be allowed to go to one, which was an Islamic high school that had opened up by the time I was like of age to go to high school. It was it was like a very, very, very strict. I don't know. You would get in trouble if you were caught listening to music upbringing. Or if you were caught watching a show, like, yeah, you would get in, in a lot of trouble. Okay, so I thought my parents were strict, um, but you kind of, like, one up to me on that. Like, my parents were not so much against, like, music. They were against me putting up, like, sync posters in my in my bedroom. And I was like, okay, Oh, fine. my God. Trade-off. The concept of posters, I can't even understand. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can't. All my friends are like, Nick Jonas this, whatever that poster this, Backstreet Boys. I'm like, huh? I, I can't even fathom, like, ever having put up a poster. My mom would be like, you put up the the ayat and kursi. That's a cool thing to do. That's what she would say. Okay, hilarious. No, that was my mom. When we would go on road trips and we would lip sync to every song on the radio, she would be like, if only you guys knew Quran verses like this. And I'm like, oh my but gosh. I'm not you were even allowed to play those songs. Like the only thing we played in the car with mama was like Yusuf Islam, uh, Dawood warns Biali, like those Anashid and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, we, you know what? Some of those songs have bars. Like me and my brother, we got you. We, could, we were like... We could actually probably sing you like his full album right now if you were to put me, a 30-year-old woman, with my 32-year-old brother. Like we could sing you all the NSCs. So fill in the gap for me. How are you now living on your own then? How are you able to finally like just pick yourself up and say, I'm making my own decisions? And also comedy is amazing. I think you're hilarious. But were your parents even fond of that? How were they able to accept now this lifestyle change for you? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm the youngest of five children and the age difference between me and my oldest sister is 14 years. And listen, lots of privilege exists out there. And one of them is youngest child privilege. For sure, for sure, for sure. I will acknowledge it fully. I can't even wrap my head around the trauma that like, especially my oldest sister went through and the one, I mean, she might be upset like to hear me say this, but (laughs) bruh, it's a lot. It was a lot like to the point where like, yeah, it's, we're still burying it. Like, you know, nobody wants to acknowledge it, but except I'm obviously secretly acknowledging it. But yeah, I think that I got away with murder in comparison to what they did. But also none of my siblings ever really pushed back. Like both my sisters got married and then moved out. My brothers just stayed living at home till my older one got married and my other one is still single and still lives there. So I, I don't know what part of me is also annoyed. Like, isn't the point of being a, the youngest child so that I can reap the benefits that all of you would have already done. Do you know what I mean? Or would have already fought for? No, like twiddling their thumbs till I actually started to push for stuff. And for me, honestly, like, I don't know. I think it was, I always rebelled against things growing up. For example, just so you have a better idea of how strict my family was. In high school, I remember like, uh, I wasn't allowed to get Facebook and then I got Facebook. I remember my sister lecturing me when I was in grade 12 and and kind of like yelling at me for writing happy birthday on a friend's wall. She's like, it's haram, it's bid'ah, blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, I'm just going to do it. It feels good to like have people do it to me. So like, I'm just going to do it to them, you know? And then after that, like, I remember in university in I think 2015, actually. So I would have been in like my later years of of college. I told my dad I I was going to run a half marathon and I did. I ran a half marathon, but my dad was so against it. He was like, this is haram because you're moving your body and you're shaking your body. You're running outside on the street. People are seeing your body, whatever, whatever. And I was like, imagine me having to train for this half marathon in secret. Like I would literally leave the house and go run like three miles or whatever and then come home and my mom would be like, where were you? And I was like, I want to see my boyfriend. <laughs> like, just, you know, making fun of her. And that's feeling guilt for running. I can't. And then, and then like, I would go to the actual, uh, the, uh, during the day of the half marathon, it's just white families like families upon families running together. Like it's like a, an annual thing they do. Like, you know, like we all gather for Aid annually. They all run a, run a marathon <laughs> annually. It's insane. And then, so yeah, certain things I was like, no man, like I want to do it. And I would get a lot of pushback. I remember I got Instagram before anybody else in my family did. And, and then I put up a photo on Instagram of me wearing red lipstick and my account was like private at this point. I have like 12 followers. Right. And my sister's like showing it to my whole family and they're oh, all wow. talking shit about me. Like, you know, it, it was almost hard to exist because everything was scrutinized. Everything was a big musiba was a big tribe, like was a big drama, like or a big scandal, you know? And then in, in my last year of engineering, we had uh, our capstone project, which is like our final year project. It's a big deal. Some people launch startups, you know, after those projects and stuff based on them. And so we would be in the lab till like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And my mom would just start texting me like, what kind of a man is ever going to marry you? Uh, you're in the streets. Well, it was unbearable. My anxiety, was, I didn't even know that's what it was called then, but my anxiety was just skyrocket. I wouldn't be able to like focus on anything. It would just be me kind of like fighting back with her and then also like not getting anything done. So eventually I was like, yo, the best thing to do is just literally ignore her because that way I don't have to fight with her and say awful things that I feel guilty about later. And I can just do whatever we're doing, you know, like finish the project or whatever. So yeah, I feel like it was just kind of a life that I had gotten used to where I was always fighting for things. And then I will say that comedy was a huge, 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 almost tsunami in in the water because it was the first time that my parents didn't approve of something. And 
I persisted. Like usually, okay, like running a half marathon, they're against it, but then you do it and then it's over. You know, it's not like my career is running a half marathon every day. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like comedy is a career. Like it's every day I'm going to do it. And in the beginning, yeah, my dad was so against it and he he tried to talk me out of it. And I also like almost got like a panic attack uh, from how much anxiety I was experiencing, trying to explain it to him, whatever. And then eventually, like, I think was just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a month off. Because also when I had first started, Ramadan was around the corner. So I took all of Ramadan off. It helped, you know, just calm the anxieties a little bit. And then, I don't know, it was little things. Like, I think my mom saw me once at a Muslim women event in a gala and her school had bought a table and it just so happened that I was the performer. And you didn't know? No, we didn't know. Oh my gosh. We got there. Yeah, it's like something out of a movie, basically, like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Basically, like I performed and obviously I took out all my parent jokes from my set. That's the good content right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then my mom saw it and and she's like looking at me like she's sitting like this the whole time, arms crossed, like, like just trying to like literally giving me the cut eye, kind of trying to like take it in. One of her teachers, who's a white convert, she turns to my mom and she's like, oh my God, your children are amazing. She's like, your daughter is amazing. She's like, all your children are amazing. And my mom looks at her like confused. Like she's like, you mean to tell me my children are not trash? Like she's literally yeah. shocked. But anyways, yeah, it was it was from that point onwards that she went and told my dad, like, okay, like her content is not that bad. They used to think I was like, she she came to me, she's like, Salma, I can't believe it. Like you had an Islamic school upbringing. We put so much effort into like raising you right, and now you're going and you're insulting Islam to strangers or to non-Muslims. I was like, insulting Islam. If anything, I just, I call out white people. Like, you know, what are you talking about? So she felt a lot better after that. My dad is really butthurt all the time that I talk about him on stage, actually. And I was like, okay, well, if you didn't do a ridiculous thing, you wouldn't be here. (sighs) No, that's hilarious. But see, our parents will never see their behavior as wrong whatsoever. And I felt attacked when you were saying like, yeah, the oldest siblings are always twiddling their fingers and the younger siblings are the ones that are like, you know, rebelling. And that's so true. Even at my age, Salma at 32, I still feel like I have a curfew, even though I don't. Like, I still will come home early. And that's just all of the the anxiety of me being younger and having to be home at a certain time, having to be home at eight o'clock. Here I am, fast forward to being a grown adult woman. And I still feel all this anxiety when I'm out late. And I just it, it doesn't make sense to me, but it does at the same time because of my upbringing. To be fair, like you probably endured a lot more strictness and it's it, like you had to almost comply uh, in order for it to be a safer space for you, you know? And like, it's the same with my sisters. Like, first of all, I was very lucky that I was born alongside a male because I used him for everything. I was like, I'm going out and I'm with my muhram so you can't say anything. I forced him, uh, like our friends groups emerged all the time. I had a lot of control over my brother too because he just went along with anything I said. Like he wasn't like, you know, boss or whatever, but I got away with so much my sister's gonna do that because they're two girls what are they gonna say i'm gonna travel they'll be like he'd be like no you don't have a muhram and then basically like i also feel like for example my sisters knew a very different version of my dad than i knew the one that they know is a lot scarier a lot angrier versus the one i know is like way more mellowed out way more chill like i remember one time my sister saw me come home really late and he was fuming and he was so mad and then she went to my bedroom and she's like oh my god he's so mad and whatever and then i put my bags down and i was like all right i'm, I'm gonna go down and she's like what I was like I'm gonna go fight him and she sees me go down and then he's he's like how can you come so late I'm like what's your problem like leave me alone like I'm literally and she sees me literally go into the lion's den and she's shocked but then I was like I was like you can't play the victim it's literally insane it's like it's kind of like with white women like you can't allow them to be a victim like you literally gotta also play victim like it's it's so wild but yeah it worked and she was shocked like she 
would never have been able to do that when she was younger. Like she was too scared, you know? See, you remind me of my younger sister because I'm the type that I would just go into my room, slam the door shut, and then just to refrain from saying anything horrible to my parents. But my sister's different. Like she would literally go and just like act like nothing just ha- nothing happened. She would go downstairs, chill. And I'm like, how do you do that? Aren't you, where's the part where you slam the door and you're angry at them and you guys don't talk for weeks? Right, Why right. is it only me? And she's like, you bring that on to yourself. And I'm like, that's so true. I honestly like victimize myself rather than just like owning it and like talking to them too. Like at some point you have to act like an adult. If you want to be treated like an adult, you have to act like an adult. And I think that's something that I kind of missed when I was younger. But again, I was the oldest. I had nobody like to look up to. And my brothers, I couldn't compare myself to them. They were much younger than me. So there was just no comparison in that in that sense. But you know, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, this like never ending cycle of making other people happy at the expense of your own happiness. Like we do certain things to make our parents happy. Our parents do certain things to make their extended family happy. And it's just a never ending cycle. And nobody is truly happy because we're tricked into thinking that our life's purpose is to make others happy. You know, there's things that like we thought were haram, like having a Facebook, going out with your friends, going to the mall, like these things are not haram whatsoever. So it has to be slightly traumatic to think that your existence as a woman can be equated to just being haram and you're not doing anything wrong. You're just truly existing. Yeah, yeah. As a woman, as a woman, I truly, oh my gosh, these last few years, yeah, have been so life changing for me because, you know, I started therapy. But, and I remember like there was one time a family friend came to see us and then she saw me and she's like, Salma, I love your spirit. And I, in front of my parents, and I literally like was shocked. I didn't know what to say because I was like, I think that I feel like that's exactly what my parents hate about me, actually. <laughs> like, I think they, my whole life, like I was taught, like, you know, being a woman in itself is like kind of wrong and being an extroverted woman. Oh my God, like insane. And, and, you know, I was always taught like the prophet's qualities is that he's introverted, men of very few words and all these other things. And I used to always be like, why am I not like that? Like, why do I overshare? Why do I this and that? Which by the way, like oversharing and all these other things comes from your traumas, comes from the fact that you weren't heard as a child, you know, you weren't validated. And so anyways, first of all, don't get me wrong. It was so difficult for me emotionally to overcome you know, being a little rebellious. And also I've, I have read a lot about, you know, sort of like psychologically dealing with parents and stuff. And, and sometimes rebellion is, is very detrimental to yourself if you're doing it just despite your parents. So for example, if let's say you have a parent that really wants you to get into med school, but you resent them so much and you resent this control and, and all this pressure that they're putting on you and you're capable of getting a 98% on your calculus exam, but then you on purpose get a 45% in order to spite them. Yeah. You're harming yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, like you're not getting into college, buddy. Yeah, you sure you sure you won this one. You made your dad mad, but like you're also harming yourself, right? I know I call it rebellion, but I honestly think that it's just kind of self-agency. Like that's actually more accurately what it is because I don't think anything I'm doing is harming myself, though my dad thinks so. He thinks it's harming my faith and, and all of that, right? But so after starting comedy and getting into it with my parents, I then got into like my first and I would say only very serious relationship in which he kind of, he started off very progressive and and open and, you know, looked up to comedy and all that stuff and and wrote me like all these essays of like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this for the Muslim community, whatever, whatever. (laughs) Then later it turned into like, what are you even doing this for? Are you doing it because you like it or because of the Muslim community? And then he compared the ethics, like the haram level, he said of comedy, he compared it to if he were to work in weapon uh, development or weapon uh, engineering for Israel. Can you imagine? I was like, what? I was like, one of them is literally killing people. The other one is killing people with laughter. You know what I'm saying? I would love if people died at my job. But like, it's, it's so... 
like wild. So, and then after that relationship ended, oh my God, like I was just questioning everything. Like I didn't know what my morals were and what I wanted to do. And I really struggled with it emotionally to the point where I gave a whole TED talk about it, you know, called why people pleasing is hurting you because I was trying to make sense of everything I went through with comedy and with this relationship. And our relationship was called off because his mom didn't approve of me doing comedy. And she also didn't approve of how conservative my dad was. Interestingly enough, it was like both angles. What's the middle ground then? Well, that's the thing. I think she just didn't want it to happen. And she was just kind of looking for any excuse. I but see. he listened to her. He was very much like a mama's boy or like a, a people pleaser. And the worst thing he could possibly... I actually went to Egypt and met her and stuff. And the worst thing he could possibly ever have heard from her is not oh, you're not allowed to marry her. It was do what you want. Because then he had to like live with the burden of like, what if this is such a big risk? And what if it doesn't work out? And he couldn't handle it. And so honestly, I feel like also that TED talk, like, because I don't want to take a moral stance, like, oh, I did. I gave this TED talk to figure myself out. I think it was subliminally. I was trying to convince him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. subliminally, I was trying to be like, bruh, you're never going to fucking be happy if you listen to your mom. Right. But instead of me, like sending a message or whatever, like I sent it very, I sent the message very, very, very far removed. But I no, I knew he was obviously going to watch it. Yeah. Some people just stick to posting quotes in their snaps, hoping for their ex yeah. to read it. You decide to take it to a whole other level. You're like, no, I'm yeah, doing a I TED just, Talk. I just give a TED Talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I could never and do that. His friends posted it and that was like my ultimate like level of message received. Like, That's it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, it's that. like watch it. You're going to see. <laughs> you're going to see what I'm saying. So it was wild. That is wild, honestly. And it's just like, you know, one thing that I've been very vocal about on the podcast that I'm still struggling with is like, am I making these choices for myself or am I doing it in rebellion of like people who all my life told me what to do? Like the one thing that I don't know if people still do this to this day, but back in the day we used to sit with suitors. Like my mom would get a phone call and she would say yes. Like our parents took people pleasing to a whole other level. Like my mom did not know how to say no to, to people coming over. So I would have to sit with these people. And in an act of rebellion, I ended up marrying somebody that I didn't have to sit with that I kind of got to know on my own. Hence why dating should be made public because on my own, I could not differentiate between red flags and green flags. And this person was screaming red flags, like literally his entire existence was red flags. So I feel like that's something that I still struggle to this day with. Like, am I making choices for myself or am I literally making choices to rebel against my family members or anybody that has told me what to do in life? And to this day, my mom's like, nope, I brought you good guys. You decided to marry him. I'm like, oh my God, do you not understand why I did that? Yeah. That's not your fault. My sister did the same thing. Uh, and she got divorced two years ago after 18 years of marriage and four children. I love my nieces and nephews to death. They're so, so amazing. It was a decision she made out of fear, out of desperation. Like imagine these two girls, uh, my two oldest sisters, growing up in such a sheltered home where they're not allowed to go out. They're not allowed to travel. They're not allowed to do anything. And then my oldest sister gets married, leaves her behind, leaves my other sister behind. You know, my, my second sister literally loses her best friend is in this like prison by herself she couldn't handle it she literally found someone at university convinced him to marry her they were so incompatible they're so they're babies runs away with him suffers extreme consequences because my dad cut her off for eight years we, oh. i didn't know her growing up yeah it was very brutal and then she was so desperate to get back with her family so she like came back to us and stayed married to him and whatever and then after yeah like after finally reconciling with her family which took another few years 
for them to reconcile with her and him. She was just like, yeah, I don't even think I ever felt a connection. Imagine after 18 years. And then that was actually to answer your question about moving out. That was what did it for me. She got separated from him and moved back in with my parents. And so we were living in the same house. And my mom was just awful, was just awful about it. Like she, she just, she told her things like, you ruined our life to marry him. So your life should remain ruined and stay married to him. And I'm like, what? I'm literally like, this is the most misogynist. Like, how are the women the most misogynistic people in the family? But, you know, because they had their lives stolen from them. So they kind of have to continue. They to- don't know better. And that's the sad part. You know, they honestly didn't know any better. Like, that's what they grew up with. It's kind of like a gang mentality. Like, you go through a lot of abuse and, and you have your rights taken from you. And then a new person comes in and you're like, yeah, initiation, bro. Like, you know, they kind of they have to go through the same thing I went through. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, I have to make my life mean something. Right. Anyways, I literally fought for my sister, like while she was going through a divorce with my body, with my whole soul, like fighting against my mom. And and I remember my niece like heard me one time, like getting to a fight with my mom and she was like telling my sister about it. And I was like, I have zero recollection saying any of this, but it sounds exactly like me. It sounds exactly like what I would say. But yeah, and then just couldn't handle it. Like there's a lot of gossiping too that would happen in the family to the point where it's really toxic. And then I just couldn't handle it. Like I was like, I'm moving out. I can't do this. Things got really, really bad at home. And my dad knew like he was in like, he was in damage control mode at that point. He was like, I heard him telling my mom, like if she comes home at like 3 a.m., don't even say anything to her. Like we're trying to just keep her in the house. Wow. But I was like, uh, yeah, I literally, this is how I told them I was moving out. I was like, this was on WhatsApp on a group chat. And then my dad was like, no, I reject this. Like you can't move out. Then I literally didn't answer until a week later. I was like, here's my new address. Oh, wow. And then I just left. Yep. A part of me was a little bit scared on the day of, like if if I was going to be like physically prevented <laughs> from leaving. But my dad at that point was very upset and he just went into, uh, you know, every era parent's favorite <laughs> thing, which is silent treatment. Yes. <laughs> we love a good silent treatment. But then I, after I moved out, like I did it to save my relationship with my parents and to be able to actually heal. Like imagine trying to heal from, you know, from internalized misogyny and all this stuff when every day, day in and day out. It's like, send when you're getting married. Send when something wrong with you because you're not getting married. Why won't men marry you? Why are you this and that? It's like, no matter how strong you are, if a drop of water hits a boulder every day, there will be a hole. And I was not strong enough to place internal boundaries as in anything my mom says to me won't affect me. (laughs) I needed to have the external boundaries. And my mom is the kind of person where if I told her, mom, don't say this because it really hurts me emotionally, she will be like, well, thank you for telling me your weakness. Uh, Now I will use it as a weapon. Sometimes it's like, honestly, like a never ending battle. But I feel like, you know, I almost like as much as I would love to live on my own too. But again, I'm still twiddling my fingers. But I just feel like it almost kind of gave me a second chance to kind of view my parents in a different light. Because like the people I grew up with or that raised me before I got married are completely different than the people that I'm living with right now. My parents I'm living with right now. And it's like, I appreciate their growth. And I still have to kind of like steer them back onto the right path. Sometimes they kind of can get out out of line with certain things that they say or certain mindset or just even the topic of marriage comes up. I'm like, nope, we are not talking about marriage anymore in this house. Like I'm, I'm done with it. Like it does not define me. It's not the end all be all. It's it's a beautiful thing. Like I'm not against marriage. I'm telling you, like I love marriage. I love love. I think it's a beautiful thing. For but- sure. Who wouldn't? Like who does 
existence. Yeah. Don't make it seem like that's my my sole existence. The only reason why I exist is to marry somebody and have kids. No, I was just going to say one last point, which is I know a lot of people look at divorce like a failure. It's actually called a failed marriage. Like, you know, the, the language around it is so very negative. Uh, but I actually view divorce in the Muslim community, at least, as like a tool of liberation. Because I feel like as soon as you go yes. through it, Khalas, nobody's going to bother you anymore. You're on your own and hitting 30. Oh, my God, you're expired. Nobody cares. Now they're all off your back and you could live and you could make decisions and choices on your own and not care about people pleasing anymore. The amount, oh my gosh, I have so many friends who went through early divorces and then they just came out of it like rising from the phoenix, from the ashes. And they're just like, you know, like uh, I'm going to do whatever I want and this is my life and nothing makes sense. And I just followed all these rules and it didn't pay off. And so now I'm going to choose them. And I'm like, oh my God, nothing is hard to me (laughs) than seeing a woman like transform after just being so disappointed by everything we were taught was important because of people pleasing. So I'm just going to say that, like, I think it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful growth mechanism and opportunity. You literally explained it so well. That's why I literally was just saying on the podcast episode before this, like, I just finally, finally feel like I can make my own choices and I can trust my own self and I don't need anybody's stamp of approval. At the same time, I'm not going completely against my parents or anything like that, but I just felt like, okay, I've listened to X, Y, and Z all my life and it landed me in the worst marriage possible. And now I have to go through a divorce, which is not fun, by the way, it's not fun. But afterwards, after all the papers have been signed and this person's out of your life, it's just like, yes, it's like you can finally breathe again and you can finally like be able to live your life in the way that you want to because you tried everybody's like you can kind of throw it in their face like, hey, I tried what you told me and look, look what happened. So now I'm living my life the way I want to. Right. And your mistake is your mistake. You are allowed to have it. We are humans. We're supposed to make mistakes constantly and learn from them and grow from them. But when you like kind of assign and export your decision making to someone else, and then it turns out to be a mistake. And then a lot of times they'll just turn on you and be like, well, you know, you're the one who married him or you're the one who chose it or whatever. It's like, it's just such a betrayal and a betrayal from them towards you and from you to yourself. Like, you know, but you make a mistake and you marry, yeah, shitty ass guy, whatever. So many people have done it and you're going to forgive yourself so much easier and move on so much easier, you know, like your mistakes are yours to make. So yeah, I'm very proud of you. So let's talk about one mistake that you made. Okay. Yes. (laughs) You already know where I'm going with this. How were you ever part of the Haram Please? Like how were you part of the Haram Please? And then I would love to get into just like your relationship advice. I think you give the best relationship advice out there and you go to therapy. You're such a huge advocate of therapy and I absolutely love you for that. You just make it so comfortable to talk about. But first, let's talk about the Haram Please. How were you initiated and how were you finally like able to get out of that? Well, first of all, being part of the Haram Police is selling myself short, okay? <laughs> I was high in the ranks, okay? Oh, okay. I, was, I was the highest. I was like a colonel of the Haram Police, oh okay? Gosh. I was very high, high-ranking member. So yeah, it, I mean, it, it stems back from my upbringing. Like, I wasn't allowed to do anything at all. Wasn't allowed to listen to music. Wasn't allowed to, like, even say happy birthday on Facebook, right? Was not at all allowed to hang out with guys. And I went to Islamic school and, and I see people like, you know, oh my gosh, in Islamic school, the amount of people in secret relationships go to the mall you know like taylor swift's song like the mall before the internet it was the one place to be everybody was at the mall square one in mississauga like everyone just you know whatever and and i wasn't allowed to go at all and i wasn't allowed to be part of it and whatever but obviously that's in my like that's not in my conscious mind in my conscious mind i would see my friend like texting a boy or whatever like i was literally judged them constantly for having boyfriends when all i wanted in my entire life was a boyfriend (laughs) and i would see them yeah like talking to whatever and i'd be like i'd go to my friend my best friend and I'd just be like 
I can't believe you're doing this. Like, do you want to go to Jehennem? Like, and just shame them and yell at them. But I, but I, I genuinely thought I was doing good for them. Like I, I thought I was like, I have to guide them. Like they're misguided. They don't realize how severe of a sin this is, you know? Oh my God, just insane. My friends were caught in like this weird space because I was also hilarious. And I was also like the life of the party. And I would tell so many jokes and stories. And we would imi- I would imitate teachers to the point where they would be rolling on the floor laughing like literally you know they'd hold their stomachs from laughter and all that stuff and so they loved hanging out with me they loved being with me but then they also didn't know when that switch was going to come on where I would turn against them and berate them and lecture them and yell at them and whatever so they just lied to me like they never told me ever about their relationships they kept me out of the loop with a lot of things like and and you know people gossip in high school so I would find out like oh did you know your best friend is dating this dude and then I'd go tell her I'd be like are you are you dating him and she's like nope she would literally look me straight in the eye and lie 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 but she had to because it was like an unsafe environment for her if she didn't you're like her second mom yeah worse than her mom like I feel like her mom their moms were more forgiving and then eventually I stopped being self-righteous when I got to university not because I didn't think I was better than other people but because nobody told me anything oh wow and I wanted to know the gossip I wanted to know the FOMO like nobody ever opened up to me nobody ever told me anything and I was like oh my god okay well I think I'm just gonna have to stop judging because first of all nobody tells me anything second of all it doesn't work they still do it I would rather be told you know I would rather them do it and be in the know like I would rather have the hot goss uh (laughs) So I stopped judging people out loud, but I continued to judge them in my heart. You know what I'm saying? So I'll give you an example. So I recently made the difficult decision that after 22 years of wearing the hijab, I'm not going to wear it anymore. And I, you know, posted on Instagram without it, etc. And one girl from high school messaged me and she said, Hey, Sanma, like I had the worst experience in high school because of you. She said one time I came to a surprise birthday party of yours and I was wearing a hijab and a t-shirt and you sat there for 30 minutes, like berating me. Sanma, you were horrible. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I was so, but I mean, I was also 16, you know, and I was also in a home that didn't let me do anything, you know? And she said, I can't believe it. Like you made everybody, you shamed everybody who didn't wear the hijab and now you took the hijab off and you're asking for kindness. This seems so hypocritical. Like I can't wrap my head around it. And she was like, yeah, she, she was just really, really like upset about that. And, and she said, I tried to follow you as to support you, but I couldn't even as a silent follower, I couldn't stomach it. And yeah, she just kind of put that out there. And I was like, honestly, thank you for telling me that. Like I have felt so much guilt for the way that I've treated so many people in high school, particularly my two closest best friends who I'm still very close with. And, and when I posted about the hijab, they messaged me like offering me support and I was like thank you so much for being angels to me when I'm going through this when I very much was not an angel to both of you when you were going through it right and yeah they told me they're like Sanma come on like you know you were brainwashed like you know you grew up in a very strict family blah 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 and and also I was 16 you know but like (laughs) I feel like out of any regrets I have in this world like that's my top regret like um, how I treated people in high school and how I also treated my brother around that time, the one that's closest in age to me. <sighs> like mistakes are mistakes, they're fine. But when it potentially impacts other people and causes them harm, like that's the hardest thing for me to like get over and, and recover from, you know? 
And it's almost kind of like, how do you recover if those people haven't recovered yet or those people haven't like accepted your forgiveness? I feel like, yeah, I mean, we're always evolving. We're always growing. And sometimes it's like the choices that we made, the things that we said, it wasn't almost like us saying it. It was just like what we're taught and what we thought was right versus wrong and everything. But like, how do you make sense of this space right now? Because like, yeah, here you were, you used to be part of the Haram police when you were 16, when you're younger. But now you actually now have the reverse effect. The Haram police is now attacking you. I hope they're really not attacking you. But like you have people coming up and telling you, hey, you're being hypocritical, this or that. And there's a lot of people that always just are not happy when they see a woman taking off hijab. I just truly feel like I never want to be that person that pushes somebody away further from their religion by attacking them for whatever physical decision that they made that shows that, you know, maybe they are struggling in whatever way. I'm somebody that never wore the hijab. I'm somebody that, inshallah, one day would love to wear the hijab. But it's like, I just can't be that person that tells somebody you're a horrible human being for taking off the hijab because you don't know what she's going through. You don't know if she's ever going to put it on again. But imagine you being the reason where she's like, nope, I, I will never put it on again or I'll never do this or that or that because of you. Like you never want to be that person. But how do you make sense of the space right now? Because I know it's probably like really kind of like very difficult to kind of navigate. And I know you're such a funny person. And sometimes, you, yeah, you turn your trauma into jokes. But as a human being, what does the space feel like for you right now? Yeah, I mean, getting that message from from that high school friend or or classmate, I guess I don't know if she wants to be identified as a friend. Like it was kind of like my biggest fear coming true, you know, but at the same time, I was like, I'm so grateful that this is being brought to me and that I can finally address it. Because also, I was in this space where I was like, should I go and message all of these people that I felt guilty about treating? Or is that unnecessary? Because it's like, first of all, awakening maybe memories that they want to keep hidden or and that's only to, to alleviate my own guilt and not really centering them. You know what I mean? But because she brought it to me, I was like, okay, I can address this, you know, and, and everything she was feeling and everything she said is totally fair. Like, I was like, yeah, that's completely fair. Like, I wish I could apologize or take it back. But like, I did apologize, of course, but I, I mean, like, I wish I could take it back, but I can't. And then it's just kind of like, you know, like sitting in that discomfort. I don't, I really don't know what else I could do. You know, a big part of me also, like the Haram police, younger me is still also inside of me and is like kind of looking at the decisions I've made right now and is is dying is judging me wow. and is like how are you doing this like what do you mean you know she, she would have been so disappointed if she was in real life or if someone told her in when I was 16 like you're gonna do this in the future she probably would have like physically fought them <laughs> she would have been like no 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 I'm not how dare you but then you know with therapy and stuff a lot of it is kind of unpacking that that is not my voice you know, that's actually like my mom's voice in, in me or that's, you know, like the community's voice or, or whatever. I know obviously like not being visibly Muslim is a privilege, unfortunately, right now because of how Muslims are painted and lack of representation, et cetera, which I'm working like day and night trying to change, you know, not just from a comedy perspective, but hopefully from like a scripted TV perspective in the future, inshallah. inshallah. But like, I know that like nobody feels sorry for me <laughs> that I'm not wearing the hijab anymore. But like when I made the decision to not wear the hijab anymore, was so scary and terrifying because I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to lose credibility in the community. I'm going to lose the whole communal aspect. I'm going to lose so many things that I kind of like just swimming in and, and thriving in, you know, but I think that it's kind of also a very telling time to realize like who truly supported me for me or who sees me beyond the labels versus who kind of placed conditionality upon our, our friendships or our connections. So that's been like kind of a very sobering moment and stuff. Showing compassion to myself is like the hardest thing to do during this time because I never showed it to anybody else. And you know what I mean? Part of the beauty of life and growth, I guess, is just realizing like life is so nuanced and people are not all bad or all good, you know? 
I agree with that. And honestly, you don't know what tests and what trials Allah is going to give or put in your way. So it's like, yeah, we can't judge other people. We don't know what they're going through. You don't know if you're going to be dealing with the same test either. Like you said, your 16-year-old self would have never imagined you'd be at this point. Not that it's a bad point, good point, whatever. It's just at this point in life. So you don't know. We can never imagine what is yet to come. Like what hardships or blessings, nothing like at all. So yeah, one hardship that I think we never anticipated to be so difficult is dating. And I know that's like the D word that I don't know if our community has yet accepted or not. But I just feel like, again, after going through a divorce, I feel like there's a lot of things that I could have kind of picked up on the red flags if it wasn't so rushed, if I was able to allow this person to meet my parents with no conditions. Like, no, we're not going to sign any paperwork. Let's just like actually like meet each other's families, get to know one another and stuff like that. But I feel like we don't have that in in our community. And I think that's something that we do need. And I'm not saying that it's going to completely decrease the amount of divorces or anything like that, but it'll at least help you to better understand like, is this person right for me? Do we share the same values? I'm not just marrying you just for, for the idea of marrying you. So how has like, first of all, therapy helped you with your relationship or your dating life? And do you feel like it's necessary for us to remove the shame surrounding this topic of dating within our community? Absolutely. I mean, that was the first thing I was going to say was that there is so much shame in our community when it comes to dating. And it's because dating implies sexual activity. Oh my God, nothing, nothing elicits such an emotional reaction out of Muslims than, you know, anything related to sex or anything related to something that could lead to sex. And I feel like all of it has to do with women's virginities, like all of it. Like it's like if you're dating whatever and then you have sex, oh my God, that means you're going to lose your virginity and then everything. Oh my gosh, you're not even worthy of like existing or being alive anymore. You know, like the amount of shame and control is crazy crazy. And I think like, I know I I went through a very serious like relationship, but I literally, literally did nothing with that person. Like we didn't even hug. And so I think like in therapy, like one of the things that I a little bit like unpacked was the severe shame around anything sexual. And also like the fact that human touch and human connection and all of that is actually literally biologically uh, a need for us. It's a need for us, which is so wild to me because I grew up never hugging or touching anybody, you know, kind of like a little bit coming to terms with that and realizing like I'm not an evil person. I'm not a shaitana for like having wanted to like uh, uh, hug my partner or hold hands or, or yeah, I feel like there's just so much shame around that. And it probably comes from a lot of insecurity too with men. Like they're scared of a woman who is sexually experienced or knows what she wants. For me, that was a, a really big part of unpacking that. And then also realizing that just just like in my haram police days, we can constantly yell at people and say, this is haram, don't date, this is haram. But it's not realistic. It serves us so much better when we're a lot more open about it and when when we have a more open system about it. Also, something that I had spoken about before was how privacy versus secrecy in a relationship is very different. And uh, privacy is totally fair and normal and acceptable. But secrecy, you know, can lead to an environment where, I don't know, abuse is happening behind closed doors, but you don't know that it's happening because you're like, oh, I have to keep this relationship private. I can't really talk about the goings on of it. So I think all of that kind of helped change my viewpoint about dating a lot. Plus, are you dating just to fill a quota or a box of like, yeah, okay, I accomplished this social milestone? Or are you actually trying to find your life partner who you really connect with, you know, on a, on a, on a deep human level? Exactly. Somebody said this, which is I thought was hilarious. Like, um, I seen, I think on Instagram, they're like, dating can either give us two kids and a wedding ring or a really expensive therapy session. So in your case, are you at the expensive therapy sessions then, son? Definitely expensive 
therapy session. But I also feel like, I don't know, when I was reading that, I was like, in some cases, it's a little bit of both, you know, like uh, for a lot of Muslim, a lot of my close friends, who, for example, who got married last year, it's also a lot, for a lot of times Muslims, their marriage is their first relationship, right? Relationships awaken so much insecurity and like intimacy issues that you didn't even realize you had. Exactly. <laughs> right? And then even girls, even within girls, like I know we're always like men are trash, this and that, but bro, like everybody has issues, right? And so I feel like going through marriage sometimes like makes you be like, okay, okay, why am I struggling to communicate this? Or why do I feel so much anxiety? Or why do I this and that? And even if it's a healthy relationship and then yeah, going to therapy like can help give you a lot more awareness. And and that's why I think relationships, no matter what, are such a great growth experience, no matter the outcome, you know? I know a lot of people struggle with like kind of even finding somebody to talk to or even a potential partner, but like, how do you put yourself out there? Or do you feel like you're also struggling in this boat? Do you feel like there's like a lack of good men out there that meet your like standards and values? I think that definitely the more standards you have and the higher you grow in like emotional intelligence, for example, the less people you will find probably that that kind of fit into this bracket. But then but then it's kind of a matter of readjusting what actually is like a priority for for you. For example, one great activity that I did in therapy was like, what do you want to feel when you're around your person? Not what do you want them to have, like, you know, be six foot tall, have six figures, whatever, whatever. What do you want to feel when you're with them? And then I'm like, I want to feel heard. I want to feel appreciated. I want to feel special. I want to feel, you know, seen. I want to feel reassured. I want to feel secure. Uh, You know, all of these things. It's a great exercise. I would definitely recommend doing it because then that way, when you're on a date too, like you spend less time worrying about how does this person think of me? And you spend more time identifying with yourself and being like, how do I feel about this person? You know what I mean? In terms of like a numbers game or whatever, if there's you know, truly no expiry date and all of that. And we're all just making our way through life. And we do want to find a partner and stuff. For me, I do believe in like the abundance mentality that there are so many people in the world. Oh my God, there's sometimes you'll just meet one person and you find out that they live down the street from you this whole time. And you're like, how did I never ever meet you? And I'm like, imagine there's, you know, there's so many people. I think that like having faith is really important in these moments, like knowing that you will find someone. It's very important to remain proactive. And for you to continue to put yourself out there. I mean, I think right now the best way is probably dating apps, right? Just because of like all the isolation and stuff as well. But but for me, yeah, also going to shows or going out with friends that are, for example, introducing us, our circles to other circles and then asking about people and kind of putting it out there, like being like, I'm just letting you know, like I am looking. So if you have any recommendations, like let me know and, you know. I think that's the secret sauce, like literally just being open about it. Like oftentimes we act like, oh no, like I can easily find somebody. But no, like sometimes you have to just let people know, hey, I'm looking for somebody. If you know anybody that's good, why not send them my way? I think it has sometimes to do with like our pride or ego or whatever. It's not that we're desperate for marriage, but at the end of the day, like we want companionship on our own terms. Do you think love at first sight exists? Or do you think that's like another lie that Disney gave us? Like, did you ever feel like butterflies as soon as you've seen somebody? Even though somebody says you're not supposed to feel butterflies because that means you're anxious. Because butterflies also could be interpreted as spark, maybe. First of all, Disney lied to us about a million things and just romantic comedy movies in general, yes. I think. <laughs> but I do feel like sometimes like an extreme pull towards someone might also be from certain things that you have denied for yourself that you see them doing. For 
example, or, or some guys, for example, have really wanted to try comedy and, and they really want to like go out there and build a career in, in like entertainment or whatever and, and all these things, but they're scared and they've like kind of suppressed that or silenced that. And then they see me out there doing it. They might feel a big attraction to me, mostly because of what I'm doing, but you know, they might confuse it and be like, oh, it's her. But it's actually because I'm exhibiting qualities and skills that they uh, have been too scared to maybe pursue or develop in their own selves. So I think sometimes love at first sight, a lot of times is actually that, like you see this guy who's like outgoing, traveling and doing all these things. And, you know, we're, we're here, Muslim girls sheltered, <laughs> have never traveled, for example, just an example. And then you're like, oh, my God, he's so like worldly, he's going to teach me everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? That might play a big role, you know? And I feel like the more you fulfill yourself and the more you, you kind of be the main character of your own life and live life a little more proactively, the more it'll kind of take away from that extreme pull. But I do think like spark, but like just based on my experiences, it's gone down a lot more now. I remember when I was in my Haram police days and my shelter days, I just see any man, any guy, any guy walk down the hall and I was like, this is my husband. You know what I mean? One eye contact and you're like, oh, we're getting married. Send out the wedding invitations. Oh my God. I remember those days. hundred percent. So you brought up a good point though. Like, do you feel like the men of today are less threatened by a woman's power or independence? Or do you feel like they're just acting? Like that's something that's kind of like hard to tell right away. But like in your personal relationship, you found out later on that he was kind of like going against the idea of you being in comedy. So it kind of sucks. Like sometimes you're so invested and all of a sudden this person completely does a 180 and starts to say like, you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. And by the way, Dunya, that's why I think dating is very important or or marriage where divorce is allowed and not a big deal. Because I think people definitely put on a show in the beginning or they themselves don't even know how they would react in a situation. People have very little self-awareness. You would be shocked. And they say stuff like they say like, oh, yeah, I would fight the bear. And it's like, no, actually, you would run. You would run if a bear came right now. But they love to believe like the best of themselves. And especially men. Oh, my God. Men have such a high like impression of themselves versus women like think of themselves as something horrible someone said about them like 15 years ago like do you know what I mean and so I feel like a lot of times they portray this image where they're so open and whatever whatever and and then after some time like eventually their true colors come out and I think that's what's really important about dating is like you know seeing people's actions instead of hearing what they're saying because oh my god yeah everybody everybody wants to be a progressive cool guy or whatever now I think that dating is important because it actually helps you see like what the other person is as opposed to like this image that they're trying to paint for you, you know? I have one more dating question for you. And I wonder if you've ever had to deal with this, but like, are we entitled to the quote unquote car facts of our potential partner? Like how much can we know about somebody that we're talking to? Like what secrets about their life can they withhold and it's okay versus like us going the route of honesty is the best policy. Like are we entitled to know everything about the person or where do we draw the line? Because again, we have certain choices that we made in our lives or certain people we've talked to that I don't feel like putting on my dating resume. There's no reason for that. It doesn't affect you. But what can we withhold? Well, okay. So I think I'm I'm gonna base it off of what I would want to know in a guy. So I'm totally cool not knowing whatever, unless it's like something that is going to like impact our life together. So if there, there's like, you know, like a porn addiction or if there's like a health issue that has come up from previous sexual engagement or whatever. And if right now they're like, you know, for example, being sexually active with other people or whatever, whatever, like I think at a 
certain point, depending on how advanced the relationship is, like I would want to know that stuff and I, I would need it to be transparent, like straight up. But yeah, like all the other stuff. And of course, like if, if there's still not over someone, if, if there's like a lot of if something went down very ugly and then they that's still kind of like remaining open right now. Like, like I don't know, for example, because a friend of mine did this. She was going through a divorce and she was dating and didn't tell anybody that she was like going through it, which is fine early on. But like, yeah, I would want to know, like, are you married right now? <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Are you going through a divorce? Like, like, I would want to know those things just because it pertains to them in the now you know, and it pertains to them in the now and potentially our future. I feel like all of that's fair and on the table. You know, you kind of brought up one point where like I've witnessed this happen so many times and it's so sad. It's like where a guy's like head over heels for a girl and he wants her and everything like that. But his mom is like, hell no, he doesn't want the girl, which you've related to before. And what the mom does is she starts like literally sending more women towards his way so he can get married. He ends up getting married to one of them and then they end up divorced because he's, his mind is still on his previous relationship. And I think that's very toxic that that still happens in our community where like the moms are trying to like push certain girls on on their sons sad it literally happened to princess diana yeah remember yeah he was like still in love with camilla the whole time and she lived a miserable life that is actually what causes the most harm in my opinion because it causes a ripple effect here that you're forced into and then and then you know you take it out on your children and they have a broken home and uh you know because whatever you don't actually love this person and oh my god it, it, it causes like a communal uh, level of harm in my opinion how do we deal with rejection and how do we deal with like failed relationships? Because this is something that I read recently. It was so interesting. They're like, have you ever heard a man say everything happens for a reason? I'm like, that's so true. It's always us women that say that. I feel like it's because we're always trying our best to get over the relationship. Or we're trying to find the lesson in the pain. But I've never heard a guy say, oh, everything happens for a reason. She was met. No, they never go into that. They just go on to the next or they just deal with it on their own. Yeah, to be fair, a lot of men don't really deal with their emotions. They just rebound. And then guess what? They get heart attacks uh, very early in life because they're not actually processing their emotions. No, no, but it's literally true. Like there's papers on this. You know, if you don't process your emotions, like it will come up in your body as like a tumor. There's a lot of research about this. Emotional trauma needs to be processed and needs to be heard and needs to be lived out. Otherwise, it will manifest physically in chronic pain and worse situations, you know, obviously you can't know exactly what's caused by what, but it, there's a strong, strong relationship between your your mind and your body. And basically, yeah, like, so I, I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, men are the goal and <laughs> how they process their emotions at all or lack thereof. But yeah, that's so funny. I think the best way to handle rejection is probably more exposure to it. Unfortunately, I know that's not what people want to hear. Nobody wants to get rejected more. But the more you get rejected, the more you realize and the more you reject, the more you realize it's not a personal thing. And it's kind of like, yeah, like my roommate would always say, you could be the best peach in the batch and someone might still not like peaches, which is something Beyonce said or whatever. Yeah. With in terms of relationships being looked at as like failed relationships, I don't see it that way at all. Like we we spoke about this, right? Like yeah. I, I think it's so important to exercise self-compassion in these moments and to look at yourself as a child that's within your care because we kind of all are children inner children you know in the bodies of adults and just kind of like say you you did your best you tried to like affirmations that I used to give myself when I was literally having basically panic attacks like just tell myself like you did your best God loves you I have a heart of gold like I was repeating stuff that like my therapist had said to me too and I was like and and you know like I will get through this I did my best you know because a lot of times we stay in relationships that are like like a a car on fire because you're like but what if you also won't forgive yourself because you'll always be 
like, oh, what could have been? So kind of just being like, I did my best, not in my hands anymore. And then just kind of, yeah, basically giving yourself the self-compassion and the kindness that you need to move on from that. Honestly, that's the best advice. And sometimes it's not going to be like sugar-coated or anything like that. Rejection means that, you know, it's just, it didn't work out for you. It wasn't meant for you. And that's okay. And even if you deal with it more than once, you know, I just truly appreciate you for coming on the podcast, Sanma. This was hilarious. I absolutely love the conversation. And I feel like we almost kind of have the same upbringing to a certain extent. I could still listen to music, but it's okay. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And I was going to say like one quote that stuck with me that I think is so so great is you can't hate yourself into healing. 100%. I had somebody who had talked about that. She's a therapist herself. And I was like, wow, that is so profound. I, I used to be like, you can think like you can hate yourself into a better version of yourself, but that, that's not how it works. You have to practice self-compassion. If you're asking for it from other people, then you have to give it to yourself. Whatever you're asking from other people, give it to yourself first. So you know what it feels like to have that in regards to trust, compassion, all that good stuff. Is there anything that we can look forward to? Because I would love to see you in person. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of tapings here in Canada. Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of people in the States like don't have access to our <laughs> I mean, I don't even have cable here. So I don't even like watch have my tapings. But I will be recording a comedy album end of November, November 19th and 20th, which people get confused like about comedy albums. They're like your band. I was like, No, I started a band with my brother in law and my sister as a joke. Okay, not real. It's not what I do professionally. But basically, it's like kind of like a comedy special except audio version. And it goes up on like iTunes and Spotify and stuff. So So yeah, that's kind of my biggest thing that I'm working on now. Uh, An album is a big deal. It's kind of like the last four and a half or five years of comedy just you know, put into this piece of work, my legacy, you know, that's probably the biggest, most exciting thing I have coming up. And once it's up and edited and, and it's available uh, to stream, I will for sure let you know. And I will definitely share. I think that's exciting. I see it's like podcast forum. It's amazing. I think everybody loves to listen to things on the go and to be able to listen to your jokes on the go is like probably the best thing ever. But I just truly appreciate you, Cinema, and I'm excited for you. And I'm, I'm wishing you just the most success possible on your journey. And I believe that you're literally going to be a house name, not just in Muslim households or Arab households or whatever, just everywhere around because you're just honestly incredibly talented. I can't wait to witness more of your growth, inshallah. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.